0: Well, this is Ed Setzer Live, and we are live this and every Saturday at this time on your favorite radio stations, or you can also, uh, hopefully many of you are listening at the link or listening uh, via the internet as well. But we're glad to be able to have this conversation with you. And today, our guests, we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about the Old Testament, which again, I don't want you to tune away. I don't want you to turn this off. I want you to stay with us because I think for a lot of people, they're wondering how to read the Old Testament. They're wondering how best to engage the Scripture. They want to read the Bible, uh, but maybe the Old Testament is kind of where it gets them stuck. As a matter of fact, I often joke that we uh, many people will start with enthusiasm reading the Bible through in a year, and Genesis is great stuff, but by the time they get to Leviticus, they're weighed down and slowed down and unsure how to read the Bible itself. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And so we're going to take your calls as well. We are live. I'm actually live. I'm in London right at the moment in the Notting Hill neighborhood of London. I'll be preaching tomorrow at Kensington Temple, which is an Elam Pentecostal church here, a wonderful church here in London itself. And our guest is Dominic Hernandez, and Dominic is an associate professor of Old Testament and Semitics at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He is the author of several books, including Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read the Bible, Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy. Well, he teaches on an array of topics, including biblical wisdom, ancient Near Eastern literature, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're gonna talk about all those things in just a moment and take your calls as well. My name is Ed Stetzer. I am at the moment the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, uh, but I'm actually going to be moving pretty soon, July 1. I will be the Dean of the Talbot School of Theology. So Dominic is my new colleague, and so I'm glad to introduce him to you, but I'm also learning about his writing and his work as I interview him at your benefit and mine. So so again our phone number is uh, as always 877548 Three six seven five, but we're just going to jump into our conversation with Dominic. I'll give you that phone number again later. So, Dominic, welcome to Ed Stetzer Live. And and you're, I mean, when you think about the Christian faith, you think about people who love Jesus, people who love the Bible. Most people who say their favorite book of the Bible, they don't list an Old Testament book. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm just. I'm starting the way people think. I'm not saying it. This is the way it should be. So so tell me, how did you end up in the Old Testament as a focus, rather than, say, the book of Philippians, which might be on everyone's you know top hits? Well, first of all,
1: Ed, thank you very much for having me on this show. It's delightful to get to chat with you, and also, uh, this is my opportunity to get to know you a little bit more as well, <laughs> so it's going to be great to have you as a colleague here beginning in July, and I'm really looking forward to getting to know you more in person. But as of right now, we'll have to settle for earphones and microphones and and uh, this discussion about the Old Testament, which uh, it's interesting that you mention the Old Testament and compare it to Philippians or a New Testament, book, because that's precisely what got me thinking about the Old Testament. So let's take Philippians or in my sort of uh, neo-Reformed circles, Romans or Galatians, uh, all of these types of books Christians uh, approach. With tend to approach with great fervor and a great desire to learn lots about, especially these, you know, the arguments that relate to Paul and what Paul is doing. We, we do pretty good with the Gospels. We like stories. I mean, who doesn't like a good story, right? Particularly when their Savior is the Savior of the story. Uh, but sometimes we struggle with the Old Testament. So here's a little bit about my story. Uh, I, I, when I became a believer in Jesus in my early teenage years, so I became an a- actively, I started actively walking out my faith in my early teenage years. I, I immediately started going to these churches that would say things like they believe that the entire Bible is the Word of God. Uh, and some of these churches preached through the entirety of, of the Bible, but many of the churches taught taught those books like Romans, Galatians, and Philippians, to use your example, on a much more frequent basis, and seemingly were more excited about those types of books than Let's say Leviticus uh, or the the let's say the genealogies at the beginning of the book of Chronicles. Uh, uh, and but but those same churches would say things like we believe the entire Bible is the word of God. They as we got a little bit more as I got a little bit more complex in my uh, theology, they would say things like verbal plenary inspiration that the entire all of the words of the Bible are inspired, equally inspired. But that was something that i didn't see many christians live li- living out they they didn't live out and the churches didn't preach out i guess you could say the entirety of the bible being inspired that that christians this view that christians actually believe that all of the the words of this of the scriptures were inspired that is the words of leviticus and all of the genealogies are just as inspired as the red letters that we see in some of our red letter bibles or uh paul's arguments in 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 wonderful Letters like Romans or Galatians. So finally, when I started my biblical theological education, I went to a school of ministry that um, had a very similar, most excellent school of ministry that had a very similar view of the Bible uh, to the one that I just explained. That believed the Bible was the very word of God and all of it was inspired. Yet we took twice as much Greek as we did Hebrew. And it was during this time, during those Hebrew classes, that I, decided, or maybe we could say it was a a call, I had a deep sense of urgency to help Christians work through especially the difficult portions of the Old Testament. So that's how this all got started.
0: Love it. I love that. And I, I believe you mentioned the School of Ministry. I was over at Brian Broderson's house this week, and I think you went to Calvary Chapel School of Ministry, right? I did, and I, I went to the Calvary Chapel School of Ministry
1: from 2006 to 2008. Prior to my seminary experience, it was a wonderful school of ministry. And if, if if I you know if I didn't leave if if I left out the fact that we took twice as much Greek than Hebrew, I would have mentioned the name because that that wasn't you know exactly <laughs> that's fair flattering. But but the po- the point is the Calvary Chapel churches, lots of the Calvary Chapel churches teach through the Bible from beginning to end. So, and, and, and I love that. Yep. That's why the study of the New Testament or the study of the, the Greek language twice as much as the study of the Hebrew language didn't, didn't match up for me. That's why there was a little bit of dissonance yeah. there. Yeah.
0: yeah. And for me, that's, I mean, for me, exactly. I did that. I, I, I think I took three times as much Greek as Hebrew. I took I took that one required Hebrew class, um, and I took, you know, I think two years of Greek, Um, and 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 partly because uh, my assumption was that I would want to know the New Testament. It was, if you will, more important uh, than Walter Kaiser, of course, also you know a giant in your field of Old Testament studies, Mm -hmm. uh, challenged me. We were a group of us at lunch, not just me challenged me that if the majority of the Scripture is the Old Testament, we should prioritize it. Maybe not saying that if the you know, blank percent is the Old Testament and blank percent is New Testament, that's how much we should read it. But the sense is that we should prioritize engaging the Old Testament as well. And so, so, so how would you encourage Christians today to, to read and to prioritize the reading of the Old Testament in their engagement with Scripture?
1: Ed, this is going to sound very simple. But let's start with the very simple, and that is in order for Christian people to prioritize the reading of the Old Testament in their lives, they actually have to read it. Uh, Hopefully that got some of the listeners to giggle a little bit, but it's true. What I noticed throughout my my time since the school ministry days was that um, Christians tend to default to reading the New Testament. Now, by the way, I, I mention uh, this specifically in my classes as well as in the, in my book. I'm not saying let's pretend that we aren't Christians. I'm not saying let's pretend that the New Testament doesn't exist, and I'm certainly not saying let's pretend that we aren't believers in Jesus or that we, uh, you know, the New Testament writers help us understand our faith more fully. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, however, is that. In many of these sections throughout the Old Testament, where we read the Old Testament and we engage with the Old Testament well, the first thing that we have to do is actually give it a shot, give it a chance to tell us how good God is on its own terms, and then we can continue to move and get a wider, larger panorama, a broader panorama, as we continue reading the scriptures.
0: So, so we're getting a bigger picture of the, of the teaching of Scripture. And one of the things that, of course, Walter Kaiser challenged me in is that you really can't understand so much of the New Testament without understanding the context of the Old Testament. Um, so in, in, in your book, by the way, the book, everyone, just is called Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy Well. And I know we're going to have some brilliant calls with some brilliant questions, and we're going to give away a few copies of those books to people who have uh, asked brilliant questions or made brilliant comments. Again, the title of the book is Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read the Biblical Narrative um, Poetry and Prophecy Well. But I think that's part of the challenge, is reading the Old Testament well maybe takes a little more preparation than reading the example I gave Philippians. Well, you know, I, I could, you know, be anxious for nothing, but everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. I immediately know what that means. I immediately know, maybe to some degree, how to apply to it. Not not all of it. I could we could go to Philippians chapter two and talk about some of the challenges that are there. But I want to talk uh when we come back and I want to take your calls as well, I want to talk about how do we do that? How do we read the biblical text, the Old Testament text well. Our number, I want to invite you to call is 877-548-3675 If you have questions about how to read the Old Testament how, how to apply it in your own life Again, our number is 877-548-3675 One more time eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five. Politics brings more division than ever, and social media is moving many to be less social and more critical. Those with Christian views are also often being dismissed. Well, what if the rise of secularism, though, is good news for the church? Throughout history, these times of decline traditionally precede powerful spiritual renewal, even revival. You need to read Mark Sayer's book, Reappearing Church, The Hopeful Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. Get a copy of Reappearing Church today at MoodyPublishers.com. Hey, we're back. Is Ed Stetzer, and this is Ed Stetzer Live. We're talking to Dominic Hernandez. Dominic is an associate professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He's got a new book, uh, one of several he's written. The newest one is Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy. And that's what we're talking about, is how do you read the Old Testament? I think most people have a desire to read the Bible. Reading the Bible through a year is a very common Thing that Christians will undertake. But I guess the question is, how do we do that best? And are there different ways to read the Old Testament as we read through this as, as well? Matter of fact, I think uh, we'll, well, I want to ask broadly how to read these three categories that you talk about in the book. Again, the subtitle of the book is how to read biblical narrative, poetry, and prophecy. So if you don't mind, Dominic, explain to us those broad categories of narrative, poetry, and prophecy. Uh, And then we're going to take some questions already. we got some calls. Our number, again, you can ask as well. Our number is 877-548-3675. It's 877-548-3675. So talk to us a little bit about that. How do you read those different categories? And how do we think about the different ways, the different kinds of genre in the Old Testament?
1: Sure, Ed. So this book is a combination of some of my hermeneutics notes, as I taught hermeneutics in English and Spanish throughout the past couple of years, as well as my Old Testament intro notes. So what I realized in hermeneutics class classes was that um, many hermeneutics classes, as I was thinking about how to teach this, many hermeneutics classes, what they do is they break up the Bible into certain genres. And they say, these are the rules for interpreting this particular genre. And to genres there are no ends so you can split up the bible in different sections and different chapters and sections of chapters and say this is a particular this is an oracle or this is this or this is that and here are the rules for reading an oracle or something like that what i what i had a problem with and the problem that i have with that approach is that uh, it seems that texts what they do is they participate in different genres and they can move in and move out and combine Different genres, and so we probably shouldn't be superimposing r- rules for uh, reading certain types of genres. Um, what we should be doing is per- we should be permitting the text and the genre and the author to speak to us. And so, wh- what I what I tried to do is I tried to minimize the quantity of genres and give more general principles for reading throughout this book. So I just narrowed it down to narrative, poetry, and prophecy, knowing that prophecy. Includes both narrative and and poetry, um, and as a, as opposed to getting into the the nitty gritty into the weeds concerning how to read specifically how to read genres and subgenres and the like, what I did in the beginning of the book is I just gave four pointers for how Christians and maybe even paradigm changers for how Christians need to or certain reading commitments that would facilitate what I would consider to be a better reading of the biblical text. The first thing that I say, and this is where we all have to start, is that we have to read humbly. That is, we have to recognize that even though we have lots, we can get lots of information about the biblical text from the biblical text, and even about history and other things from the biblical text, all of our readings of the Bible can always be better. And we have to be humble about that. We have to go to the biblical text and, with a humble disposition, ready to learn from the biblical author things that we have ne- maybe have never thought about before, never considered. We have to be willing for our theology even to change and be modified and nuanced by the biblical text, which has authority over our lives. We also have to read successively. Now, that doesn't mean start in Genesis and go to Revelation necessarily, but it means that we have to recognize that the Bible, all of God's revelation, God's written correspondence and God's verbal correspondence did not fall from the heavens all at one time. So there are going to be sections of the Bible that are incomplete insofar as they don't give us the the entirety. They don't give us the big picture. picture. They don't give us the panorama. They give us sections. So we have to keep reading. And then the third principle is reading entirely, which was what we mentioned before the break. And that is in order for Christians to, to engage well with the Old Testament, they actually have to read it. They have to read it in its entirety. And then lastly, what this book mostly focuses on, that is the second, let's say the the last two thirds of the book or so, focuses on reading deliberately. And the best way to to explain what reading deliberately is in a way that everyone can understand, though there's details in the book, but the best way to explain it is to say to the reader, slow down when you read. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, there's there are lots of benefits to reading fast. I, I recognize that, and also there's an issue. You know, many fast readers are considered intelligent. People that read lots of books a year are considered intelligent. But when we when we read the Bible, there there are there are positives to reading fast. You certainly want to get the, as much of the panorama as possible, but there's some real negatives. To reading fast. Sometimes when we read fast, most times I would say, when we read fast, unless we are incredibly gifted readers, that is, we perceive details, we will some, sometimes skip over or maybe even pass over or even take for granted the genius of the writer. The biblical authors were really smart. And we, with distances between us and the writers, Many different distances, particularly language, geography, and all, the cultural distances, all of those distances, we have to slow down to breach some of those gaps. So those are the four pointers that I start off the book with concerning how to engage the Old Testament well.
0: Love it, love it. We're going to get into some specific questions as well. Let's go first to uh, James in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Roll Tide. James, you're on the air with your question your comment. Go ahead. Oh, I don't know that we have James there. Okay, so we'll all come back with a question. We'll see if we can figure that out, Courtney. If you could check on that, sure. that would be great. Okay, so when you when you walk through the Old Testament texts. Um, you know, sometimes the Old Testament text has a clear, plain reading and understanding. You know, we think about writings in Joshua, for example, what's God going to do? Uh, how How is Joshua going to respond? Things of that sort. But there are some places when it's not so clear. So help us to think about that. You've already used the word hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is this understanding of the interpretation of Scripture. When we read things that are less clear in the Old Testament, how do we try to understand them more fully?
1: Well, I think sometimes when we read things in the Old Testament, many of our problems with reading come from us as readers, not necessarily with the text. So that's why some those four principles, those four re- reading strategies that I gave a couple of minutes ago are very helpful because sometimes we approach the Old Testament with certain types of expectations that we, for many Christians, in this, for, we perceive from the New Testament. So let me give you an example. You mentioned in the first segment um Philippians and how we we might default to reading a book like Philippians. And I said, yeah, and Romans and Galatians. Well, in those books, in those New Testament books, we can easily make ourselves as contemporary readers, the interlocutors, that is the conversation partner, the dialogue partner of Paul. And we, we can do this to a certain extent, even with Jesus's stories in the Gospels. And so the application, or the stories about Jesus in the Gospels, or even we maybe better stated, the words of Jesus in the Gospels. So the application to the lives of contemporary readers is a much straighter and shorter line from text to reality for us. But you try to do that in Ecclesiastes, and it doesn't work. And the reason is because, well, first of all, we're not the primary interlocutors of Paul's texts and the Gospels, and we're not the primary interlocutors in Ecclesiastes. But the distances, when I say distances, I mean many distances, or cultural distances, language distances, the distances in how things were writing. So rhetorical distances, all of these distances are much greater with sections of the Old Testament. So in, in a way, that is a problem that is not just caused by the text being difficult. By the way, Kohelet Ecclesiastes is, is kind of a difficult book. <laughs> but it's not just caused by that. It's also caused by expectations of the readers. And some of these expectations are Distinctly contemporary, they they run deep in, in in Christian culture, which you're an expert to, to talking about this type of stuff. Uh, but so I, I would I would start off. I mean, we can talk about the specifics in the Old Testament. But I would start off by saying that many of the issues that we have when we read the Old Testament are not because of the Old Testament text being difficult, but rather they're, they they stem from certain impositions that we make upon the text as contemporary readers.
0: Hmm. I think your comment about being distant help, that's that that's helpful as well there is i mean clearly I mean, there's always a cultural distance that's there you know, when we read the biblical text because it's written at a different time by people in a different world but the time and the distance does seem um, greater you know, when we look to those old testament references as well let's try uh james i was very proud of the fact that when i went to james i, I said roll tied to him a minute ago so because i know very little about sports but i've been to an alabama football game in tuscaloosa alabama but james let's not talk football because that's all i know but james you're live on the air with your question or your comment go ahead Okay. Well, thank you very much for taking my call. Um, My question is this, in talking with other believers, especially about the prophecy part of the Old Testament as it relates to the coming of Jesus, sometimes I have fellow Christians say, well, I just don't see that. And I realize that they're looking at it from a, a 21st century point of view, trying to look back. And I'm just wondering what criteria did the ancient Jews use to determine if this passage was actually a messianic passage or if it was just something referring to a general prophecy, maybe about Israel in, in general? Oh, that's a great question, James. If you'll hold on a second, too, we're going to give you a copy um, of the book. The book is uh, Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy Well. So, so Dominic, I mean, great question from James is how do people, uh, how, how would Jewish readers... Have looked at a passage and seen it as messianic, relating to Israel, a combination thereof. Because we look at it today and we say, well, this is referring to the Messiah who has come. But even today, Jews wouldn't read it the same way. So explain some of the differences that are there. Yeah, this is this is this is a great question for a couple of reasons. First
1: of all, and that's not Fuller, that's me actually saying this is a great question. Um there are a few, there are a few different there are a few things that we have to recognize as we as we walk through the Old Testament, and that is, uh, particularly prophecy. Many times Christians take, they understand the concept of prophecy to necessarily be speaking about the future. This is a very important thing that we have to understand as we talk about prophecy, but the biblical prophets weren't necessarily always talking about the future. So on the one hand, we recognize when there's pushback, not just from people in the Jewish community, but also by people in, the, in, in our Christian communities saying, Hey, that passage may not actually be talking about the end times. That passage may actually be talking, let's say, about one of the exiles, the Babylonian exile, or maybe about the return of the Jewish people from exile or, or something like that, right? So those are a couple of things that we need to take into consideration. First of all, not every passage is necessarily a, a futuristic or an end times passage or maybe even speaking specifically about Jesus. Some of those passages, if they are futuristic, might not even be you know, talking about events that happen deep into the future. Now, uh, I'm I'm glad, James, that you got a copy of this book because I speak about this from chapter 16 or more like 18 and 19 more specifically, where I talk about what I touch on the passage, the disputed passage, Isaiah 53. Now, what's interesting is that as we're talking about engaging the Old Testament, and you you mentioned how how, you asked, how how did Jews read these passages. Well, a, there's a couple of ways that we can figure that out. But the quickest way for Christian people to figure that out is to go to the New Testament, because every single writer of the New Testament was a Jewish person except for, for Luke. So the, in the New Testament, we, even if you don't necessarily, even if you're not of the Christian tradition and you don't necessarily agree with the way that the Jewish writers of the New Testament understood Some of the passages of the Old Testament, No, I agree with them, but even if you don't agree, that is early Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament test, what what Jewish people would call the Tanakh. That is early Jewish interpretation. Right around that time, or within a couple hundred years of that time, prior to this time, you also had documents like, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can see their view of of, of passages that were certain that were messianic, and there are several of these passages that we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly in the sectarian documents, so the documents that were specific to the group that lived in Qumran. Several passages that they also considered to be that they shared with Christians, they also considered to be messianic. So I think you have a couple of of, of extra Old Testament that is outside of the Old Testament. Uh, compositions, a group, several groups of compositions, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Testament, where you can see what Jewish people or how Jewish people read certain Messianic passages.
0: Well, I want to follow up on more in just a second. I want you to stay with us. And let me encourage you, too, we've got uh, your calls are available, 877-548-3675. Questions about the Old Testament, how to read it. Again, 877-548-3675. We're talking to Dominic Hernandez from the Talbot School of Theology. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. Hey, we're back at Stetzer Live. You're listening at Stetzer. I'm actually live from London, uh, where I'm here for the next few days, uh, speaking at Kensington Temple tomorrow, some meetings at Oxford on Monday, and then with the Vineyard National Meeting in the UK here, later in the week. So looking forward to a few days here in the UK again. Uh, My guest is actually in Southern California. where I'll soon be moving to serve with him at the Talbot School of Theology. Dominic Dominic Hernandez is my guest. His new book is Engaging the Old Testament. How to Read Biblical Narrative Poetry and prophecy. Well, I think that, um going to lead to a question from one of our callers has about, well, how do we apply passages from the Old Testament to today? Let me invite folks to give us a call. If you have questions as well, 877-548-3675. Particularly, too, I'd like to hear uh, maybe you've got a way that you've thought about the Old Testament, how you might read it and engage it well. In addition to questions, all are welcome, Eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five we're going to go to Jim in Florida Jim you're live on the air what's your question or your comment Up, oh, Jim was going to we're going to come back we're having some technological difficulties so just hold for one second Jim we're going to come back to you now it should work now Jim you're live on the air go ahead Greetings, Ben. I just wanted to ask you about the applicability of some of these Old Testament passages that often we hear in the church. And specifically, I'm thinking about, for example, Second Chronicles, if my people will are called by my name will humble themselves. I assume that's a promise to Israel, but not necessarily to the New Testament church. I'm just curious your perspective on that. Jim, I think it's a great question. We're going to put you on hold, but after Dominic answers the question, I'm going to give you the uh, give you a copy of his new book as well. It is called "Engaging the Old Testament: How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy." Well, Dominic, I think that verse is probably um, his question is a question I'm asked frequently. Love to hear what you say. Uh, answer to that question to that verse, but then talk about some of the national promises of Israel in general as well. Go ahead. Great question.
1: I think that it's very
0: important when we read the Old
1: Testament to recognize that we are not the primary interlocutors. Now, what do I mean by that? I mentioned before we before we went to the break, that, it, that an interlocutor is a person who takes place in a, a dialogue or a conversation. We, as contemporary Christian people, recognizing that the Bible is the very word of God and it is indeed written for the church, for the benefit of the church of faith and practice, we want to make ourselves, in many cases, the primary interlocutor. So we want, in many cases, unless it's, of course, judgment, to uh, read ourselves into all of the you passages, you and, and I'll bless you and these types of things when in actuality, there were there were more original. We could say um, original. There was a more original readership. There were uh, there was an original group of people that would have been able to apply not only these promises but even the the entirety of these texts to their lives. They're, they were held accountable for the, the the types of comments that that Jim just made uh, in in ways that the the contemporary church is not. So. Having said that, I want to make very clear, I actually do believe that the Bible is intended for the church. That is in the entirety of it. But we as contemporary readers derive principles from these texts that were that had initial audiences. And through these texts, we're able to see the character of our God. We're able to see how God acts in God's world, how God interacts with God's creation, we're able to derive principles, but we are not necessarily now the inheritor of all of these promises, which in many cases are not even promises, but we perceive them as promises to ancient Israel. Um, uh, With regard to to the second question or the second part that you you brought up, Ed, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I think it's possible to recognize that there are sections of the biblical texts that are, that are not intended to engage the contemporary church as the primary audience, like the text that was just mentioned, or Jeremiah 29, 11. They teach us about the character of God. But at the same time, you mentioned promises, national promises to Israel. I think it's possible to hold both of these things together in tension. That is, we have... Um, the text being applicable to the entirety of the church all people that believe in the god of israel while at the same time they still being promises to ethnic israel that were not don't seem to have been abrogated so that's my opinion about that um, again, we could get into the weeds on some of this stuff, though I'm sure I'm not I'm not sure that we would want to divide the listenership that way. But, uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, I want so to go I, I want
0: to go weeds a little bit with Jeremiah twenty nine eleven because you mentioned we'll it do whatever you quoted. want then. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> well, just because I mean here, it's, you know, it's such a famous verse. You know, for I know yeah. the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plan to give you a, a hope in the future, giving comfort to to many. But it is well. Get, explain to us a little bit about the original context and any applicability it might have for us today.
1: Well, you know, I remember. L- let me let me do this by way of telling a, a brief illustration. One, one time, I, I was um, I was with a I was I was do, in, my, in graduate school, and I was with a bunch of professors, very well known professors, and I was having dinner with them. It was a it was sort of an interview before interview, but they were all people that I looked up to. Uh, and I, I, I was sitting with them, and um, and they asked me how to preach from the Old Testament. And I I thought at that time, so we're talking years ago, but I thought at that time that the the proper Christian response would, would, was to say something like, you got to get to Jesus from every single passage at some point during the sermon. And... The, the one of the professors maybe the most well-known one said to me you know maybe some of these passages are intended to simply show us how good god is in that context and i i heard that and i would like to think that i was that that was a parrot I, I received it and that shifted my paradigm as to how to read through passages like Jeremiah 29, in the Old Testament. So there are always historical contexts, for example, in that context, it's the context of the Judean exile, right? But are we learning something about the character of God that can be applied in our very day and age? Yes. But does that particular, the we could say the promise of texts like that one necessarily apply to contemporary christians if they if they just claim it or if they put themselves as if they were the in the position of historical no that's not that's not the purpose of the writing of those types of texts we ha- we can still however understand the character of god and apply who apply those texts in that they teach us more about who god is and how god interacts with god's creation
0: Hmm. Okay, good, but I still want that verse to be on my my table, so I want to put that a little. You can put it on black, your table so if a... you
1: want. <laughs> you know, there. I, I'll say this it, 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 for at the at the. I might be being a little, little long winded here, but there are several texts in the Old Testament that Christians don't necess- that Christians tend to not cite in context, but rather utilize the rhetoric for contemporary circumstances even though they recognize that they're not citing it in context. Now, depending upon the situation and the understanding of what those words mean, I'm not completely opposed to that. So let me give you a brief example. Uh, Frequently, we'll say things to women of honor or value or a virtue that she's will say something like, she is a Proverbs 31 woman. Well, those of us that have studied Proverbs, most of us, I would say, but I don't want to join anyone in on me unless you're, you know, I don't want to make anybody mad here. Let's just say me, as I read through the Proverbs, that is very clearly not the application of Proverbs 31. This is not a checklist for all virtuous women to do. This is just not the case. This seems to be the personification of wisdom. We have various intertextual uh, clues there that what we're talking about really is wisdom and not a checklist for a virtuous wife, as maybe some of the translations translate this. So when we, when we call our wives or when we call our mothers or when we call women, virtuous women, making reference to Proverbs 31, is that always done in context? No, that's not what the passage means. But can it be utilized in a contemporary society to encourage people? I think it can be, given the right context. So I'm not completely opposed to it. But we have to recognize that sometimes the the, what we, the, the meaning that the contemporary meaning that we give to these biblical texts is not necessarily what the writer was intending, and we should be striving to get it what the writer was intending.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Always good interpretation. Always good hermeneutics. When we do that, we're going to continue our conversation with your calls and more uh, conversation with Dominic Hernandez. Our number is 877 548 3675. We're talking about his new book, Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy Well. Again, our number, one more segment. You want to jump on? This is the time. 877 877 548 3675. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. Hey, we're back. Our guest is Dominic Hernandez. Uh, he is a faculty member at the Talbot School of Theology, where I will soon be serving as dean, and this has been my secret way of getting to know him by asking him a bunch of questions here live on the radio across 200 outlets across the U.S., lots of you listening via podcast. By the way, if you uh, don't listen by podcast, maybe you just happen to be tuning in on a Saturday, and you're like, I'd like to listen to this every week or whenever I can, just go to EdStetzerLive.com. You can subscribe to the podcast. I actually take you to the Moody Radio app. You can subscribe to all of our uh, programs via podcast. And by the way, thanks for listening to me live from London. You can probably tell a little bit from my voice that I've got a cold or something, and so uh, so apologize for the occasional uh, whiny sound, uh, but but glad to be able to have this conversation with Dominic Cornettis, and also taking some great calls. Juanita, you're going to be up next from Cleveland, Ohio. Ohio. Juanita, go ahead with your question or your comment.
1: Hi. I wanted to find out, how do you read, understand, and apply Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon and Job I get the beginning of Job and the ending of Job but like why is it there <laughs> and how, it's a what great does it question. mean <laughs>
0: yeah it's a great question one of you to let him answer but hold on the line we're going to give you a copy uh, of his brand new book Engaging the Old Testament how to read biblical narrative poetry and prophecy well Dominic I don't know a better question to set this one up so how do you read particularly Job but she mentioned also Ecclesiastes uh, as well tell us
1: did you say that we were running out of time now I'm not sure is
0: this coming to no we're good we're good we got time <laughs> this is the last segment so so just but yeah I get what you're saying but do do your best to not go full professor mode
1: okay I'll do my best to not go full professor mode if it's okay with Juanita we'll jump to the book of Joe which she mentioned at the at the at the end and then we'll work our way to the other books um until you cut me off so uh if these books are 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 difficult books to to get and the first i think you could say the first step in order to getting these books if if we can say something like that is to actually read them even if we don't get them i encourage christian readers to to read through them continue to read through them so as we read through the book of job we job we see that there that there are two chapters of narrative at the beginning of the book of job and then there's from chapters three all the way to chapter forty-two, it's basically lots of poetry with narratival comments, and then we have an epilogue, so a little bit more narrative at the end of the book. So we're kind of like, what's this, you know, mix in 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 genre here? We have narrative and poetry throughout the entirety of the book. Also, we see that. Um, Job in chapter three is he speaks a monologue, and when he speaks the monologue, he curses, he damns the day of his birth. So we're kind of like, what's going on with Job here? And that should be the at least one of the one of the major indicators in the book that in that shows us as contemporary readers that we have privileged information. We have privileged information in Job chapters one and two. That is, we know what's going on much more than Job and his friends and the people that uh, speak out in up in the book of Job. So that should affect our reading of the book of Job. Many times we come to Job and we're trying to figure out um, you know, what what facts there are in the book, wh- whether this is, you know, before Abraham's time or after Abraham's time, or whether there are dinosaurs in the book and the like. But actually our our primary disposition to the book of Job after reading the first couple of chapters should be, wow, we are given privileged information to now discern what's going on in the dialogues. Like that is who is actually telling the truth or closest to the truth as to the situation that is at, at, at hand. As we read through the first Twenty-seven chapters, three rounds of speeches of the Book of Job. What we end up realizing is that Job actually, uh, and Job's friends, neither one knows what's going on, and they're actually misguided. Job chapter twenty-eight is a—they're—they're they're all misguided, actually. Job t- chapter twenty-eight is a is a poem on wisdom. Job twenty-nine to thirty-one is another sort of monologue, and then another character shows up named Elihu, and we don't know who that, where that character comes from. After Elihu, we have God speaking from the whirlwind, and then we have Job chapter 42 and verses 6 and 7 are pretty confusing. Some people say, ah, Job repents at the end and everything's okay. And others say, what do you mean Job repents? If Job repents, then basically the challenge to God's system of just retribution in the very beginning of the book is essentially defeated. That is, if Job says sorry and gets all of his stuff back, then basically Satan, Satan wins at the end. So the book of Job does this to us, but ultimately what I think we end up getting from the book of Job is a situation in which traditional wisdom, so I'll pause and say, as we read through the book of Proverbs, we see these traditional principles that apply to the lives of people. They seem to be very cause and effect. Uh, Many of the, the individual adages of the book of Proverbs are traditionally accepted, we could say. Well, we see in the book of Job a situation in which traditional wisdom is not applicable. All of us, as readers of the Proverbs, know that they are situation-specific. And in Job, we see a situation in which the traditional wisdom concerning, we could say, riches, concerning retribution, concerning suffering, all of these things, we see a situation in which those traditional principles do not apply. And thereby, we understand Much more what happens in the prologue, that God is in control of everything. God, in fact, as we see throughout the book of Job, really permits us as readers to perceive the, the, we can say, the mistakes that are made by the characters as they speak. So that we can reflect upon the prologue as well as the epilogue as contemporary readers and learn about the character of God. Or that's Job. Um, Ecclesiastes,
0: and, yeah. Please yeah. so, well, don't no, go to Ecclesiastes, but let me just come back to Job before you do. So sure, so then if I read the message of Job, the message of Job is what in a paragraph?
1: Uh, you, what do you mean a paragraph? Note so, paragraph, so sometimes... a paragraph, like six
0: sentences. Give, give us a summary of the message of the book of Job.
1: Here's what I will say. Sometimes we look at Job and we, we try to be reductionistic and say the book of Job is about this. And most times people will point at human suffering or they'll point at um, you know retribution or something like that. And I would say that the book of Job has lots of main points. But one of the primary points, and this is not normally where, where people go, but one of the primary points is to be able to discern situations in which traditional wisdom applies and when it doesn't and in, and also to recognize that many in many cases human beings are ignorant to the plans of god and as a result of and as a result of our ignorance we sometimes speak in ignorance but it's still possible to speak truthfully in ignorance Though, those are situa- by the way this this these are this is covered in chapters 15 16 of the book right but the these are, situ- these are places we normally go in Job because I think our approach to Job, our approach to reading Job, focuses much more on the facts that we can get from Job and not what the author of Job is trying to do with the audience.
0: Mm, okay, helpful. Okay, oh, now go on to Ecclesiastes and tell us about that.
1: Okay, so Ecclesiastes, in my opinion, is a bit more difficult, and and here's why. Uh so it seems that at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, what we have is a narratival comment. So there's a narrator, and the narrator is presenting the speech of Kohelet. Kohelet is the person that says, or at least the, the, the rest, you know, the, the next 12 chapters or 11 and a half chapters or so are depicted as being Kohelet's speech. But the narrator seems to be crafting Kohelet's speech in order to ultimately get to chapter 12. When in chapter 12, let me just just
0: say, Dominic, we got about a minute left, so keep going, but we got about a minute. Jeez. so I'm sorry, bro. Uh, here we go. Here go, Here goes. Yeah, here <laughs> it's goes live nothing. radio.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's live radio. It's most most excellent. So it, it, so I, I think what we end, end up having are Kohelet's words crafted by a narrator in order to work us toward the fear of the Lord and obedience to God's commandments. By the time we get to chapter twelve, so it's a compiled composition, very similar, in my opinion, to the Proverbs, in that the Proverbs is a compiled composition as well, with a intended to get the reader to a specific disposition, that is to fear the Lord, just like we get to at the end of the book of Proverbs, right? The woman who fears the Lord, this woman is wisdom. We are to embody this. All of us are to embody this person that fears
0: the Lord and is obedient to God. See, you did that in a minute—less than a minute. That's I tried. A great, great answer. I, tried. I love that. I love. No, right, you right. did. You did well. Well, again, we're we're talking to Dominic Hernandez. I want to encourage you to pick up his his new book. It's called "Engaging the Old Testament: How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy." Just in about thirty seconds, too. I know you went to you did the Calvary Chapel thing. You went on to Princeton, and then you studied in Israel. Tell us thirty seconds why engaging in that kind of context at that university helped you understand the Old Testament.
1: Because it's not an echo chamber. Sometimes we need to step out of our circles and listen to other voices and receive what we can get from other voices and permit those other voices to speak into what we do in our lives. And I think studying in Israel was very helpful in that I was outside of my context. People that cared about me spoke into my lives and they really helped me as an academic and even personally.
0: I love it that you got a PhD from a Jewish university in Israel. That's that's fascinating. And and a great that's conversation today. Dr. People Dominic. There. Excellent people. Doctor Dominic Hernandez, Associate Professor of the Old Testament and Sem- Semitics at Talbot School of Theology at Old University. Look forward to getting to know you better, Dominic, working with you there at Talbot as well. Thanks to our listeners and our great callers as well. We have lots of great callers today. We appreciate your conversation engagement as well. Uh, let me thank my team. As always, Courtney Young, our engineer, Karen Hendren, our producer, and I think Charles has been on the phones today as well. But thanks again to you for listening. Also, let me remind you that you can listen to every episode if you subscribe at edstetcherlive.com. And of course, remember that Ed Stetcher Live is a production of Moody Radio. Moody Radio is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. We look forward to hearing and listening. This conversation continues next week here at Ed Stetcher Live.